Welcome to Then and Now with Ed Stevens, President of the International Preterist Association. Then and Now is a weekly podcast designed to explore past fulfillment of Bible prophecy in order to equip us for guiding the church in its ongoing reform. And now, with today's message, here's Ed Stevens. Welcome back to another study of biblical history and eschatology from a full preterist perspective. Last time we covered the first of the five sections of Romans in which Paul shut up all men, both Jew and Gentile, under condemnation. That was bad news to everyone, including Jews and Gentiles. In this session, we will look at the second of the five sections of Romans, which we have labeled the good news. Before we get into that study, let's pray. The one true God, who is God not only of the Jews, but all the nations. We praise and bless your holy name for grafting us into your chosen people. We are so grateful to you for allowing us to be justified by faith, without having to earn that justification through law-keeping. Help us also to understand how we should live in response to that grace that you have poured out in our hearts. We know it is not an easy believism or cheap grace, but rather daily dying to sin and living like Christ. May your Spirit illuminate our hearts as we study the words of your bondservant Paul about your amazing grace and our grateful response to it. We pray this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, who accomplished this redemption for us. Amen. Well, before we get back into our study of Romans, I want to give you a little bit of a report about our exhibit booth at the Evangelical Theological Society conference last week. That trip to ETS in Baltimore was the reason why we did not have a podcast last week, so I owe you an explanation and a report about it. I was in Baltimore last week at the Evangelical Theological Society Conference. It floats around every year to a different city. Two years ago, it was in San Francisco. Last year, it was in Milwaukee. This year, it was in Baltimore, and next year it will be in San Diego. In November of each year, we set up the exhibit booth at ETS to promote the preterist view to its 2,000 or more attendees. This was our 15th consecutive year to do this, and every year the benefits for the whole preterist movement keep getting better and better. It increases our visibility and awareness of the preterist view. It provides a better understanding of it to those who are made aware of it. And it reduces their resistance to it and promotes much more receptivity toward it. And finally, it positions preterism as a conservative option within the evangelical community. Just by being allowed to exhibit there, it positions us as conservative evangelicals. And that's very important because they would never listen to it otherwise if they viewed us as liberals or uh, some other group. So it's very important for us to be an exhibitor there because it positions us as evangelical conservatives, which is what we really are. 
we provide the most conservative response to the liberal critics of Jesus himself, who say that Jesus was wrong when he predicted his second coming in the first century. And so we have a very conservative response to the liberal critics and skeptics. And that response or that option that we have uh, needs to be heard by our fellow conservatives there at ETS. And that's why we exhibit there every year. Every year, the number of negative encounters at our exhibit booth has been less than the year before. And the number of positive encounters always increasing. The last few years, there were no negative confrontations at all, and lots of very positive conversations. There were no speeches or paper presentations delivered against preterism, and there were some speeches which used partial preterist hermeneutical principles on some of the eschatological texts. Our goal every year at ETS is to help those key leaders in conservative Christianity understand the preterist view, and see it as a valid option within conservative evangelical Christianity. And it is working. Attendees at this annual conference are key opinion leaders in conservative Christianity. They're theologians, seminary professors, writers, publishers, pastors, ministry heads, and media personalities in evangelical circles. We usually have a half-dozen preterist guys who volunteer at their own expense to work in the exhibit booth and interact with the hundreds of attendees who drop by. This ETS trip was one of the best. A big thanks to all of those who prayed for our work there. Those prayers were answered. We had several dozen great interactions with young seminary students. And that is the real focus of our ETS effort, to introduce the preterist view to as many young guys as possible before they are fully assimilated by the futurist. It was also really good to see at least three other full preterists there at ETS, Rex Geisler, Paul Anderson, and Dr. David Warren. In addition to our Exhibit booth workers who also were full preterists, Dr. Michael Britton, Albert Pigeon, and Edmund Lee. It was also interesting to see the number of partial preterists who showed up at our booth. Fifteen years ago, when we first started exhibiting there, almost no one had ever heard of the preterist view, much less had a position on it. Now the situation is completely reversed. Almost everyone there has heard of the preterist view and has a basic idea of what it's all about. We had wonderful preterist fellowship on Thursday night after ETS was over at the home of one of the local preterists there in the Baltimore area. There were five of us there for some great study and fellowship and interaction. I was amazed at how many biblical texts we dealt with in that short four-hour session of time that we had there in our fellowship. These efforts at ETS are enabling hundreds of conservative Christian leaders and seminary students to be introduced to the preterist view every year. The truth marches on, but our costs are challenging. We sell very few books there, and the few books we do sell are heavily discounted in order to get them into the hands of those opinion leaders in the conservative Christian community. In addition to giving away hundreds 
of Russell's book and dozens of other individual books, there is the additional cost of renting and furnishing the exhibit booth space, which is over $2,000 by the time it's all said and done, plus shipping the books to the conference, plus my travel, food, and lodging for the five days of the conference trip. This takes a huge bite out of our budget every year, but we believe very strongly that it's worth every penny for the good impact that we're having. Minds are being informed, challenged, and changed. Our work at ETS has planted seed that is already producing good fruit for the cause of biblical truth. Every year we exhibit there is cultivating and nurturing those seeds even more. We sincerely appreciate those of you who enable us to do this work by your contributions. We could not do it without you. Many of you prayed for our efforts there at ETS, and some of you sent donations to help offset some of those expenses. That was so very much appreciated. We could never do this without your prayers and financial partnership. We are also in the process of rebuilding our website with a shopping cart. That is a very time-consuming and costly undertaking as well. We would encourage all of our listeners here to consider making a one-time donation or supporting monthly in order to help cover those costs. To do that, simply click on the secure link that's in the lesson outline PDF. I found a couple of very helpful books dealing with the new perspective on Paul while I was there at ETS browsing the various publisher exhibit booths. Uh, The first of those books that I found very interesting was entitled The New Perspective on Paul, An Introduction by Kent Yinger. Well, the book lives up to its title of being an introduction by providing a very excellent introduction to the new ways in which the writings of Apostle Paul are being interpreted by current theologians. Yinger is very fair in his explanation of the major new perspectives that have developed over the past 40 years, including E.P. Sanders, James Dunn, N.T. Wright, Don Garlington, Francis Watson, Heike Reisenen, Bruce Longenecker, and Michael Byrd, as well as all of their critics from the traditional side of the debate. If you want to get a handle on all this discussion about how Apostle Paul should be interpreted that is going on right now in the theological world and on the Internet, this book is a good place to start. The past four podcasts have given a pretty good explanation of my perspective on Paul, which is very much related to his goal of grafting the Gentiles into the Jewish church and uniting both Jews and Gentiles into the one true spiritual Israel. My perspective takes all of the good stuff that has been developed by the other guys and puts it to good use for the preterist view of Apostle Paul. Well, that's a pretty good book that I would recommend if you're interested in knowing more about the new perspective on Paul. An Introduction by Kent Yinger. The other book that I found, which was very helpful, at least so far, I haven't read all of it like the other book, is the new book called Four Views on the Apostle Paul by Schreiner, Johnson, Campbell, and Nanos. The four perspectives that are represented here are, number one, 
the traditional Reformed view on Apostle Paul and his justification by faith. Number two is a Roman Catholic view of this whole debate. Number three is a post-New Perspective view. And number four is a Jewish view of the whole debate. Now, I have not read the whole book yet, but I did read most of the comments of the Jewish rabbi. It was amazing to see how well the rabbi understood the theological framework of Apostle Paul in relation to both Jewish-Christian law-keeping and Jew-Gentile unity. He pointed out Paul's diligent efforts to bring about Jew-Gentile unity in the universal kingdom of God before the end of the age arrived. And he exposed the inconsistency of most futurists who agree that the end of the age has not arrived, but who are not still keeping all the jots and tittles of the law until the end arrives. That was the best part of the whole book for me, and was worth the price of the book just to hear his Jewish perspective on this whole debate about Apostle Paul. But I have not read everything in there yet, so I do not know whether the rest of the book is helpful or not. If any of you are interested in obtaining copies of either or both of these two new books, let me know. If at least five of our listeners email me and say that they would like to get these two books, I will order some copies for all of us. Here is my email address, preterist1 at preterist.org. Now let's get back into our study of the book of Romans. This time we're going to look at Romans chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 5, verse 21. And we've entitled this, The Good News. Uh, Last session, of course, was The Bad News. And so it's only appropriate that Paul follows up his bad news with some really good news. Be sure to have your Bible open to Romans chapter 3 so that you can see the biblical text as we talk about it. We noted last time how Paul got the attention of both Gentiles and Jews in the first three chapters by making the whole world accountable to God, Romans 3, verse 20. Paul showed first how all the other nations besides Israel had rejected God, rebelled against Him, and turned aside into all possible forms of evil and wickedness. Therefore, God gave them up to become slaves of sin. But the Jews were just as rebellious and wicked, and therefore God cut them off as well. The whole world was under condemnation. This was very bad news for all mankind, and especially for the Jews, who believed they automatically had salvation guaranteed to them just because they were descendants of Abraham. But Paul did not stop with that bad news. There is a happy ending to the story. God has provided a way to escape the condemnation and wrath, and it is all by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, not by circumcision and law-keeping. That was very good news for both Jews and Gentiles. Let's talk about that justification through faith in Christ. Here in chapter 3, verse 21, Paul tells us that that justification was provided to all who believe. 
God provided a means of escape from the condemnation. He provided the atoning sacrifice and freely applied that forgiveness, justification, and reconciliation to all who believe in Christ, including both Jews and Gentiles. In chapter 3, verse 21, it tells us that the righteousness of God, or justification, which was manifested apart from law-keeping, had already been witnessed by the law and the prophets. So this was not something totally new. The law and the prophets had hinted at it and pointed toward it, and it was now manifested apart from law-keeping to that generation in Jesus' day and the apostles' day. In verse 22 and 23 of chapter 3, Paul says here that righteousness or justification was provided to all who believe in Jesus without distinguishing between Jew and Gentile, since both Jew and Gentile alike were under the same condemnation, they both needed the same justification. In verses 24 through 26, Paul shows that justification could not be earned by good deeds or law-keeping. Otherwise, the Jews would have already had it. It could only be obtained as a gift by His grace to the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. The gift was available to all believers on the basis of what Jesus did on the cross through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, he says here in verse 24 whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation, appeasement of God's wrath, or satisfy the demands of justice in His blood. Verse 25. That sacrifice of Jesus on the cross proved that God kept His covenant promises, regardless of the fact that the whole world had rebelled in unbelief. God is righteous and just in keeping His promises and is therefore in a position to be the justifier of all those who have faith in Jesus. Notice all the heavy-duty language and theological words that are used in this section of Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. Righteousness, justification, grace, redemption, propitiation, and forbearance. These were terms which both Jews and Gentiles would have readily understood, since they relate to the sacrificial system, which both Jews and pagan Gentiles engaged in. Of course, the Gentiles made sacrifices to demon gods, but the principle of atonement, propitiation, justification, and redemption was very similar, both in the pagan religion, as well as in the true religion. Notice also in this section that Paul's focus is on God saving all believers, both Jew and Gentile, through the work of Christ on the cross. And we might point out that that's the sacrificial work of Christ on the cross. And because it's a sacrificial work of Christ, uh, it would be easy for the Jewish people and for pagan people to understand because they understood the idea of sacrificing to their gods. Notice also in this section that 
the idea of a resurrection of a collective body out of dead Judaism is nowhere to be found here in these first five chapters. That's something we need to point out here because one thing we do see here is the sacrificial language. We do not see any resurrection language here in these first five chapters, except in regard to the resurrection of Jesus, which was a bodily resurrection, and not talking about a collective body out of dead Judaism. And so that idea of a resurrection of a collective body out of dead Judaism is nowhere to be found here in these first five chapters. It has to be imported into the context by allegorical and spiritualizing hermeneutics, which redefine every sociological term here with a new eschatological meaning behind it. And, of course, that's illegitimate to do that kind of thing. They're forcing it into the text where it does not belong and where it was not placed by Paul himself when he wrote these words. And so I think we need to see that the foundation for the rest of the book of Romans is built right here in these first five chapters. And yet, here in these first five chapters, we don't even see a hint of the collective body view being discussed and included here. And so that ought to send up a red flag for those who want to insert the collective body view in chapter 6 and following because the foundation for chapters 6 through 11 are being built right here in chapters 1 through 5. And chapters 1 through 5 do not have any hint of the collective body. Well, in chapters 3, verses 27 and 28, Paul talks about the fact that justification only comes through faith and is separate from and apart from works of law. Regardless of whether the law forbids boasting about one's own righteousness, boasting about it is a moot point anyway in view of the fact that no amount of law-keeping could justify anyone. The only way anyone could be justified is by believing in Christ. And so justification only comes through faith and not in connection with any works of law. In verses 29 and 30, Paul makes the point that God is not only the God of Jews, but is also the God of Gentiles. He asks, is God only the God of Jews and not of Gentiles? Paul here is pointing out the implications of monotheism. Devout Jews recited the Shema every day. Yahweh is our God. Yahweh is one. This was a very strong affirmation of the fact that there was only one God in the universe, and his name was Yahweh. This implies that Yahweh must be the God of all the nations, not just Israel, and therefore must save all those who have faith in Christ, regardless of which nation they come from. This was an implication of monotheism, which the Jews may not have clearly understood. So Paul points it out to them in unmistakable terms, borrowing language from the Shema, which they recited every day. This must have been a bombshell in the minds of his Jewish readers when he explained this to them. Well, in verse 31, Paul seems to 
think that some may have interpreted this justification by faith without law-keeping as making the law worthless and meaningless. In view of his preceding argument about Yahweh being the God of all nations and not just Israel, it would be logical for the Jews to conclude that law-keeping and being in the covenant of circumcision with Yahweh was therefore meaningless, purposeless, and worthless because it didn't justify them and didn't save them. But Paul quickly disallows that idea by showing that even though law-keeping could not justify, the law still had a valuable purpose and significant place in the overall plan of redemption. Leon Morris said it well. He says, quote, Paul has already laid it down that the law, as well as the prophets, witnesses to this salvation. In verse 21, The law is the divine preparation for the way of salvation in Christ, but it is not itself the way of salvation. Jesus said that he came to fulfill the law, and he did so in his life and in his death. Paul has been insisting, as the law also does, that all people are sinners. He has pointed out that the righteousness from God, the divinely worked out way of salvation, is attested in the law and prophets. Christ's atoning death means the working out of what the law really means. When we see this, we see the place of the law. We establish the law. End of quote. Well, in verses 1 through 8 of chapter 4, Paul shows how Abraham was justified by his faith, not by works. And then in verses 9 through 12, he shows that not only was he justified by faith and not by works, but that he was justified in his faith before he was circumcised. And that was a bombshell, I'm sure, to the Jews when they heard that idea. It was not totally new to them, but it must have been very effective in this context to help them understand the necessity of faith over works. So Paul asked the question here in verses 9 through 12, was Abraham justified before or after circumcision? The true circumcision was inside the heart. Even Moses had said that. And it was not Jesus and the apostles who came up with that first. It was Moses himself. The true circumcision was in the heart by the same kind of faith that Abraham had before he was circumcised. And this kind of faith was something which the uncircumcised Gentiles could have just as easily as the circumcised Jews, because it was the same faith that Abraham had before he was circumcised. Well, in chapter 4, verses 13 through 25, Paul raises the question of who it is that will inherit the promises that were made to Abraham. Are those promises inherited by law keepers or by believers? And then he answers that question very easily by showing that justification by circumcision or law keeping was futile. God's justification comes only by his grace through our faith in Christ. Now, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, Paul shows what they now had as a result of their justification. 
he says they had peace with God, which is reconciliation with God. They had an introduction into this grace or justification or salvation, and they had a standing, some kind of a status in this grace because of their faith. And notice also what he says here in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 5. He talks about their exaltation in hope of the glory of God. Because of their justification, they now had exaltation in hope of the glory of God. Now, what in the world was this hope? And what was this glory of God that they were hoping for? Were they expecting to see and experience this glory when it was revealed to them? Of course, in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, we'll see where Paul talks about this glory of God being revealed to them very soon afterwards. He says it was about to be revealed to them. He uses the word mellow there in Romans 8, verse 18. So whatever this glory of God was, It was about to be revealed to them, and they were exulting in the hope of that glory and what it would mean to them when it was revealed to them very soon. They were expecting to see this glory revealed and experience that glory when it was revealed to them. As a result of their justification and their faith, they also had exultation and not sorrow even in their tribulation, because it purified them and increased their fruit and their heavenly reward in the afterlife. And they also had hope that will not disappoint. That was the hope in the glory of God, seeing that glory revealed to them. That was a hope, Paul says, that will not disappoint. Now, question. Think about this. Their hope was fulfilled. That hope was not disappointed. Did they experience that hope of seeing the glory of God revealed to them soon? Did they know that they saw it? Did they experience it in a cognitive way? Did they know about it afterwards? If they were exulting about it beforehand, like he says they were there in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, If they were exulting about it beforehand, why weren't they exulting about it afterwards if they really experienced it in a cognitive way like they were expecting to and like they were hoping to? Do you see the problem with that if there was no rapture? They would have still been around. Why weren't they exulting about it? Why weren't they talking about what they had just experienced? Seeing that glory of God revealed to them. There's a problem here for those who do not believe in a rapture. This hope did not disappoint. But if they were still around afterwards and didn't talk about it, didn't exult in it, it sure looks like they were disappointed in their hope. The futurists use that silence and lack of exultation as proof that the second coming did not occur. But the rapture shows why they were not exulting about it afterwards. Because they were not around. They were gone. Well, one of the other things that Paul mentions here that they had now as a result of their faith in Christ and their receiving justification is that they had the love of God poured out in their hearts. 
through the Holy Spirit who had been given to them. Well, that's a lot of great blessings, and it's the same kind of blessings that we have now, except that we don't have that hope of seeing the glory of God at the second coming like they did. But we do have a standing in this grace, and we have reconciliation with God, and we have the love of God poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit that is given to us at our regeneration. Okay, now in chapter 5, verse 6 through 11, Paul points out that Christ died for them while they were still helpless, ungodly sinners and enemies so that they could be justified, reconciled, and saved from the wrath of God that was about to be poured out upon the unbelievers. The sacrifice of Christ reconciles both Jews and Gentiles back to God. And that sacrifice of Christ was made even while they were still helpless, ungodly sinners and enemies of God. And so Christ died for ungodly folks. He didn't die for friends. He died for people who were his enemies. That's rare for anybody to die, especially for people who are your enemies. It's rare for people to die even for their friends. And yet here Jesus died to save his enemies. He died while they were still helpless, ungodly sinners and enemies. Then in verses 12 through 19, Paul makes the point about Adam bringing death to all of his posterity by his sin in the garden. And all men receive that same death because we all sin. And so because we all sin, we all have to die just like Adam did. But Adam introduced that death to all men. And that death reigned from Adam until Christ died on the cross for us. And now that Christ has died for us, his grace now reigns through righteousness to eternal life. Now in the last two verses of chapter 5, verses 20 and 21, Paul sums up his arguments here on justification by stating that the law was given for the purpose not of justifying us, but for clearly identifying the utterly sinful state of man so that they would realize that there was no way they could redeem themselves. This was a critical function of the law. It set the standard so high that no man could keep it perfectly. The law pointed out just how sinful we really are and how desperately lost we are without the grace of God through Christ Jesus. The law revealed the bad news and whetted their appetite for the good news. And Paul gives them the good news here that Jesus Christ has paid the price for our justification and our redemption. The point that we do not want to miss in all of this is that every one of Paul's arguments here are laser-focused on convincing the Jews that Gentiles are fellow heirs of the grace of life and reminding the Gentiles that their salvation comes through faith in the Jewish Messiah, Jesus. Neither the Jews or the Gentiles had any reason to boast. 
Both were under the same condemnation, and both could only be saved by faith in Christ. Therefore, they both needed to come together in Christ and accept each other as fellow heirs of the kingdom. They both needed to live transformed lives of righteousness and sanctification out of the gratitude they had for Christ's sacrifice. The focus here is not on Israel exclusively, but rather on all men, Jew and Gentile alike. All are under condemnation equally. There is not the slightest hint here in these three chapters that Paul is setting up some kind of collective body argument focused exclusively on Old Covenant Israel. Instead, his focus here is on proving that all men, especially the Gentiles and even the Jews, were universally under condemnation. Nowhere in these three chapters, chapters 3, 4, and 5, does Paul refer to justification and imputed righteousness as being a resurrection of a dead collective body out of Old Covenant Judaism. That idea would have to be imported from outside the context because it's not found here in this context. The only reason we preterists are having difficulty understanding Romans is because of the confusion that has been introduced into the study by the untraditional approach of the collective body view. When we take a more traditional approach to this whole question of justification by faith in the book of Romans, then it makes the book of Romans so much easier to understand. Therefore, we need to ask how chapters 3 through 5 of Romans lend any support to the collective body view. I'm not aware of any significant usage of these three chapters of Romans by the collective body view advocates to support their concept of a collective body. Their major use of Romans, of course, is focused on chapters 6 through 11. And so when we get to those chapters in our study next time, we will be talking a lot more about how they use those chapters to support their view. But it's not found here in the first five chapters. Chapters 1 through 5 is where he sets up his argumentation for chapters 6 through 11. And so if it's not here in chapters 1 through 5, then that really casts a lot of doubt on whether it's in chapters 6 through 11. Well, so far we have seen both the bad news and the good news here in the first five chapters. Next time we're going to see how both Jews and Gentiles were expected to live in response to that good news. What kind of lifestyle changes would they need to make as an expression of their faith and gratitude for that great salvation? And to say that in that way uh, points out another fact that we need to keep in mind as we look at chapters 6 and following in future studies. The fact that Paul is talking about the kind of lifestyle that they need to live in response to the grace of God shows that chapters 6 and 7 especially are dealing with that change in lifestyle and is talking about the struggle 
that Christians have as they attempt to live that kind of lifestyle that shows their gratitude for their salvation. And that means that Romans chapter 6 and 7 is not talking about a collective body struggle to come out of Judaism. That idea is simply not there. It has to be imported into the text by those who need that concept to be there in order to justify their collective body view. It's talking instead about individual Christians in their struggle to live the Christian life, expressing their appreciation for the great salvation that God has given to them through their faith. Well, I think that's enough to hint toward what we're going to be looking at next time in chapters 6 and 7. And I hope that'll be helpful for you as you get ahead of the game by reading chapters 6 through 11 this coming week before we study it. Well, that'll wrap it up for this session. Hope that was helpful for you. Please email me and let me know what you are learning in this study of Roman. Thanks so much for listening. This has been Then and Now with Ed Stevens. We would love to hear from you. Send your email to preterist1 at preterist.org. Our website has many great articles, books, and audio-video resources. The address is www.preterist.org. This teaching ministry depends on your donations, and you share in all the good fruit that we produce. To make a donation or support monthly, simply go to our website, www.preterist.org, or call us at 814-368-6578. Join us again next time for Then and Now where we study the past to shape a better future.